You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 302 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Hello everybody. How is it going? Sick of the constant verbal diarrhea coming out from corporate media? Well, I've got a little campaign going. I've, I've written a pledge over at change.org slash cancel MSM. The aim of this pledge is to render the corporate media machine relevant as well as improve the lives of people all over the world. By signing, you pledge to completely stop consuming corporate media regardless of what political identity you or the shows you used to watch have. And if you already stopped watching corporate media, well, well, just make the pledge, you know. The more that sign it, the more others are inspired to sign. So far, not that many have signed, but, you know, we're working on it, right? There is a link in the program notes to to the pledge. I also got a video about it on my YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears, perhaps you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Simply search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and it shall appear. Or click the link in the program notes of this episode. I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully... You'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments. So with your help, let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there. So... What's going on with me? Well, I'm hard at work on a History of Alchemy podcast series that I will release on a separate feed. I'll let you know, of course, when it goes live. It's, it's a chronological history of alchemy, starting at the dawn of time up until modern times. And it's, a, it's quite a lot of work, and uh, I'm uh, maybe a bit too OCD about it. But if you're interested in history and in alchemy, hopefully you'll like this series. And now this episode will also deal with history. I want to tell you a story that you might not have heard before, but hopefully you'll find it interesting regardless if you've heard it or not. Now this story takes place a thousand years ago in the Middle East. And it features intrigue, politics, war, murder and weed. Or more specifically, hashish which is a drug made by compressing and processing trichomes of the cannabis plant. I personally preferred hashish over weed back in the day when I used to smoke a lot. I particularly liked a brand called King Hassan. I don't think it referred to the Hassan of this story I'm going to tell, but uh, why not? Let's pretend it did. Now the story begins in uh, 1034 with our protagonist's birth and his name is Hassan bin Saba and he was born close to the modern-day Iranian capital Tehran. His father was an immigrant from Yemen and a prominent leader of the Ashari faith. 
Now, Shaarism is the name of a school of thought in Islam that attempted to cleanse Islam of all non-Islamic elements and to harmonize the religious consciousness with the religious thought of Islam. It laid the foundation of an orthodox Islamic theology. So that kind of movement was what his father was a prominent leader of. Now Hassan, he was homeschooled and the boy excelled in mathematics, philosophy and language. In 1038, when he was about four, the Seljuks conquered all of northern Iran, what was then called Persia. The Seljuks consisted of 24 Turkish tribes known as the Ugush or the Gus. I think you pronounce it Gush. Uh, and they originally came from uh, western Siberia before converting to Islam when they settled in the area of modern day Kazakhstan. They worshipped the elements, as did many tribes pre-organized religion. The Seljuks utilized archery to destroy the enemy. Followed by close combat, once the enemy were sufficiently disordered and disheartened. Somewhat similar to the Mongols and Genghis Khan. Now it was according to Persian legend uh, when Hassan bin Saba went to law school that he is said to have met the great poet, mathematician and astrologer to be Omar Khayyam. And it was also said it was at law school that he met his future enemy Nizam al-Mulk. The three schoolfellows uh, made a pact that whoever attained any fame, fortune or political importance first would aid the other two. This legend, like most legends, is not the truth. For one thing, Nizam al-Mulk was born 30 years earlier than Omar Khayyam and could therefore not have been in school with him. But because they were all three contemporaries and they all lived within the same region of Persia, they are connected, not only in what they did and achieved, but also how their lives ended up. Whether the legend of the pact is true or not, one thing is certain. Nizam al-Mulk was the first to reach a position in life that could be deemed fortunate when he became the vizier of the Sultan, which would make him one of the most eminent statesmen in early Muslim history. A vizier is used to designate the person and institution that represented the ruler towards his subjects. Kind of like a modern day prime minister. So Nizam al-Mulk became like the prime minister of Persia back in the day. Now Hassan bin Saba was now an intelligent and industrious man. And he was offered an Islamic province to govern. But believing he was destined for greater things, he declined. In his mind, he wanted a post in the Sultan's court, perhaps even the position of vizier. This, of course, worried Nizam al-Mulk, who began to spread slandering gossip in the Sultan's ear to such a degree that the Sultan ordered Hassan to be arrested. But due to Hassan's charm, the Sultan did not execute and uh, Hassan was allowed to flee. 
In 1070, when Hassan was about 36 years old, uh, Omar Khayyam, the third school fellow, moved to one of Central Asia's oldest cities, Samarkand, in Uzbekistan. It was here he wrote his most famous work on algebra. It's called uh, Treatise on Demonstration of Problems of Algebra, and uh, this work displayed his outstanding mathematical skills. It fused algebraic and geometric methods discussing the solution of cubic equations by geometric means and anticipating analytical geometry. Though it is unlikely that Descartes, you know, think therefore I am, uh, it's unlikely that Descartes knew of Omar Khayyam's work, but he nevertheless picked up the thread 500 years later. The Sultan and his vizier Nizam al-Mulk sent an invitation to Omar Khayyam asking him to come to Esfahan for the purpose to set up an observatory with other leading astronomers. Khayyam accepted and found himself in an 18-year-long period of peace in which he produced work of exceptional quality together with other scientists. One thing he did was compiling astronomical tables and contributing to the 1079 calendar reform. Kayam measured the length of the year as being 365.242198581156 days, which is outstandingly accurate. For comparison, the length of the year at the end of the 19th century was 365.242196 so he calculated 0.242198 so it's only like uh, 0.002 error you know today it's uh, 0.242190 so uh, it's going down for some reason but that's neither here nor there. Around the same time as Omar Khayyam was working on his scientific endeavors, our dear protagonist, Hassan bin Saba, converted to the Ismaili sect, even though he was hesitant at first because uh, the uh, Ismaili sect were considered to be heretics and outcasts. But Hassan was drawn to them because of their intellectual force and religious passion and, after suffering a serious illness, uh, he swore allegiance to Fatimid Caliph in 1072, afraid that he would die before learning the true path to Islam. The Fatimid leader defined himself not only as a caliph, which is the leader of the Muslim world, but as Mahdi, the promised leader of the Muslim world. Big difference. According to old ideas of the caliph, the Fatimid caliphs saw themselves as infallible and sinless and divinely chosen perpetuators of the true form of Islam. Hassan bin Saba began preaching and spreading the new faith he had accepted and this resulted in his exile. He headed uh, for Cairo 
in Egypt, which was a city built by the Ismaili to serve as their capital. And this journey took him several years. And it wasn't until like 1078, 79 that he finally reached Cairo. But Hassan soon found himself in prison due to his revolutionary temperament. As soon as he entered the prison, a minaret collapsed and this was interpreted as a holy omen and Hassan was believed to be a divinely protected person. The caliph released and granted Hassan many valuable gifts which he would use to set up his paradise. We'll talk about that paradise shortly. Anyway, he was then ordered to leave Egypt, uh, exiled once again And Hassan, he apparently said, quote, If I had two, just two devotees who would stand by me, then I could cause the downfall of that Turk and that peasant. End of quote. Now he was of course speaking about the Sultan and his vizier Nizam al-Mulk. Hassan boarded a ship sailing from Alexandria. During the journey, a violent storm caught the ship and everyone, including the captain, fell to their knees and began praying, thinking they would soon die. Everyone except Hassan, who stood calmly on deck and proclaimed, quote, The storm is my doing. How can I pray that it abate? I have indicated the pleasure of the Almighty. If we sink, I shall not die, for I am immortal. If you want to be saved, believe in me, and I shall subdue the winds. End of quote. No one believed him until the ship seemed to capsize, and a couple of desperate passengers came to him and swore eternal allegiance. Eventually the storm went away, And Hassan took full credit for saving the ship and everyone on board from certain death. When the ship reached the coast of Syria, Hassan bin Saba disembarked with two of the passengers that would become his first disciples. Fulfilling his uh, prophetic words he had spoken to the caliph. Now he had his two disciples. And this was the beginning of his career as a wandering missionary, recruiting and converting people to his cause. Once he got a new disciple, he used that disciple to create more disciples, just like the pyramid schemes or cell systems of modern day society. Hassan's circle of followers widened like ripples on water. Out of his most loyal and promising followers, he created an army of self-sacrificers, the Fedayeen. The Fedayeen was also known as the Hashashin. Hashashin. Yes. Hash. As in hashish. Yeah, nigga. I'm still fucking with you. Still waters run deep. Still Snoop Dogg and D.R.A. Nah, nah, nigga. Guess who's back? Hassan bin Saba needed a fortress, a kind of headquarters where he could set up his paradise. One of his lieutenants found a castle suitable for the purpose. 
the fortress Alamut, built in 861. It was located north of modern-day Tehran on the south side of the Alborz mountain range, halfway between Tehran and the Caspian Sea. It was close to important cities, yet lying in the remote and forbidding mountains. In a flourishing valley below Alamut, also known as Eagle's Nest, Hassan bin Saba created a garden of paradise. Wasn't Hitler's like uh, mountain retreat called the Eagle's Nest? Yeah, yeah I think it was. Uh, maybe they got it from this. Uh, who knows? He did like the occult, so... This garden of paradise was perfectly placed in a well-guarded ravine surrounded by a landscape of craggy rocks. Marco Polo wrote the following account in his book Travels in Asia. Quote, The old man of the mountain dwelled in a most noble valley shut in between two very high mountains where he had made the largest garden and the most beautiful that was ever seen in the world. They were set to dwell ladies and damsels, the most beautiful. Their duty was to furnish the young men who were there with all delights and pleasures. And into this garden entered no man except only those base men of evil life whom he wished to make satellites and assassins. End of quote. The word assassin is believed to be derived from the word hashashin or hashish eaters the fedayin the you know the hashashin his uh, his army also used the poppy which is opium it is said that hassan gave young converts a drink spiked with hashish and they slept for 3 days probably opium as well if they slept for 3 days Unless there was a hell of a lot of hashish. Now during their unconsciousness they were carried into the gardens. When they awoke they saw a beautiful paradise of running brooks, exotic plants and animals and shapely horries. Which are like dancing girls. It sounds almost like horse. But <laughs> anyway. Everywhere, I mean I'm sure they were um, slaves. Uh, uh, I don't think they were there willingly so... Let's keep that in mind. Uh, everywhere there was palaces and pavilions and wine, milk and honey flowed. And the maidens would perform their every desire. After a few days of this, they were drugged and removed from this paradise. And then he told them that when they die, they will go back to that place. And this is why they could sacrifice their own lives uh, at will. Because they knew they had nothing to fear. Because they had basically been brainwashed. Uh, in, a, in a very effective way. You know, they had physically gone to heaven and come back. This case is when uh, Hassan, to show how obedient his army is. That he can tell somebody, like, kill yourself. And they do. So that, that's the kind of dedication they had. Now after administering the affairs of the Sultan for some 30 years, Nizam al-Mulk was overthrown and impeached. 
At the age of 93, Nizam al-Mulk was thus dismissed from office. He traveled to Baghdad from Esfahan in November of 1092, where he met one of Hassan bin Saba's followers, disguised as a Sufi holy man. He was allowed to approach the ex-vizier, uh, and then he stabbed him to death. And according to legend, uh, Nizam al-Mulk became the first man to be killed by the assassins. The killing of this devil is the beginning of bliss, Hassan said after the deed had been done, relishing the fact that his greatest enemy was dead. But it would not be the end of the killing. This was, as he said, the beginning. Hassan bin Saba began to attack the Turks, and because the locals hated the Turks, uh, he had no problem recruiting more soldiers for his cause. Fortress after fortress and village after village was conquered through any tactics necessary, like infiltration, bribery, poisoning, stabbing, direct assault and raids. Dressed in white tunics and red sashes and armed with poison and daggers of solid gold, the assassins began to spread their terror. The Sultan sent his troops after Hassan and, and died shortly after uh, of suspected poisoning, so perhaps he was assassinated as well. Uh, and then one of uh, Nizam al-Mulk's sons came across a beggar who said, quote, The true Muslims are no more and there are none left to take the hand of the afflicted. End of quote. As soon as Nizam al-Mulk's son took the beggar's hand to prove him wrong, he received a dagger through the heart. <coughs> Nizam al-Mulk's brother was also attacked and stabbed but managed to survive. Many rival religious leaders were attacked and other political enemies assassinated as well. But not every attack was a certain victory. The first crusade uh, was called for by Pope Urban II in 1095 in order to recover the Holy Land from its Islamic rulers. During a mass meeting in Clermont, south-central France, on the 27th of November 1095, Pope Urban II enthused the crowd with these words, reported by the attending Robert the Monk. Quote, It, he means Jerusalem, it looks and hopes for freedom. It begs unceasingly that you will come to its aid. It looks for help from you, especially because God has bestowed glory in arms upon you more than any other nation. Undertake this journey, therefore, for the remission of your sins, with the assurance of glory which cannot fade in the kingdom of heaven. End of quote. The following year, in 1096, the campaign was on the way, with the battle cry, Deus Levolt, God wills it. About 900 years after the launch of the First Crusade, 
The US President George W. Bush called the war on terrorism that would follow the 9-11 attacks, he called it a crusade. And he promised uh, Iraq and Afghanistan its freedom back, just like Urban II had promised to give Jerusalem its freedom back. History always repeats itself to the misfortune of the individual. Pilgrims uh, became crusaders, and by wearing the cross they became entitled to certain privileges and immunities. Any crusader who died uh, were considered martyrs and assured by the Roman Catholic Church their place in heaven. Debts were suspended and exempts from having to pay tax were issued. The crusaders' family and possession fell under the protection of the church and the crusaders' only obligation was to fulfill his vow. Failing to do so would result in automatic excommunication. The most radical response did not come from the class of knights that the Pope had assumed. Instead it came from the poor who ignited at the glorious ideals and the great benefits of becoming a crusader. During medieval times a man could go to hell for practically anything and joining the crusade was an opportunity to gain a fresh start. An undisciplined and ill-armed army of idealistic degenerates and riffraff began marching towards Jerusalem with a noble intention to liberate it. It was led by Peter the Hermit who claimed he had a letter from heaven authorizing the crusade. Peter the Hermit was actually not a hermit but wore a hermit's cape and loved to socialize actually. The first to be attacked were the Jewish communities by groups of Germans under a priest called Gottschalk. Where where have you heard that before? And the the real motive behind this was not mistaking the Jews for Muslims, but realizing that the Jews possessed valuables that for some crusaders would finance their journey. Peter the Hermit's army reached Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, without major embarrassment to Urban II, but when they came to Constantinople, they began to wreak havoc on the city's suburbs ignoring the order to wait for the rest of the crusading army. Due to their incompetence, the Turks wiped them out on the 21st of October 1096. And this was the end of the People's Crusade. But it was not the end of the First Crusade. 22 years later, in 1818, the Sultan besieged Alamut, which was the the fortress of Hassan bin Saba. But the army returned home when the Sultan drastically died and the the fort was left standing. Hassan bin Saba, known as the old man of the mountain, since he had not left his fortress for over 30 years by now, he finally died in May 1124. And before his death he had appointed Kia Bozorg Umi as his successor. Now Kia would reign for 14 years and expanded the 
I guess you could call empire, into Syria. And it was here that the assassins fought the crusaders finally. And thus their stories were brought back to Europe and the word assassin entered into the language. The Mongols under the leadership of Hulagu Khan would cause the end of the assassins. Over a hundred years later, the last assassin Grand Master, Rukin ad-Din, and 12,000 men were put to death in a gruesome manner. There had been more than 60 castles and the Mongols dismantled every single one of the fortifications. All the scientific equipment were destroyed and all the libraries burned and everything of value ransacked. The assassins were brainwashed with hash to make them devout, dedicated warriors. But it seems to me that all this hash also expanded their minds because they had libraries and they were doing scientific research. Sounds like a stoner to me. Anyway, no trace was left and the assassins became a fairy tale and more important an inspiration for future organizations. Adam Weishaupt, founder of the Bavarian Illuminati, used hashish for heightening the consciousness of the mind and structured his organization after the assassin's cell system. This system was also used by Al-Qaeda, consisting of compact action groups within a network of isolated individual cells. The cells were controlled through a chain of blind links, making them difficult to trace back to the central command. So the assassins not only gave the word assassins its, its name, they also provided a lot of the, the methodology, what it means to be an assassin, because they stabbed, they poisoned, they disguised themselves, they used this cell system, which is very effective and makes it very hard to, to catch uh, the leaders, because every cell is limited to whoever their contact is, but that contact doesn't know the other cells and those cells don't know about that contact and because it's very hard to destroy an organization built with cells because each cell can be sacrificed and every cell doesn't know every other cell so it's it's very difficult to to defeat just like Hassan bin Saba Osama bin Laden would become an old man of the mountain or more so an old man of the cave in Afghanistan both Hassan and Osama had religious motives. Uh, Osama's father, Muhammad, rebuilt and refurbished under the Bin Laden Corporation the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina, proving his religious seal. But Bin Laden was also enraged at the US foreign policy and in terms of the 9-11 attacks, this was his main reason for doing so, not religion. Not from what I gather. Not at all, actually. The suicide bombers of Hezbollah have much credit to give to the dedication of an assassin. And let's not forget the word in itself and what it has come to represent in modern times. A hired gun, a killer, a murderer. Weed is often seen as a drug of peace. A drug that makes you chill. 
But it's very interesting that a thousand years ago it was used effectively to recruit and brainwash assassins, even giving assassins its name. I could also talk about how they created Charles Manson with LSD, as well as the Unabomber. So you know, psychedelics is a force of good, but in the wrong hands can be a force of evil. Well, I hope that entertained your morning, day, afternoon, evening, whatever time it is. I tried at least. I hope you like some history. I do like history. If you want to support me, become a patron. Even a buck a month from a lot of people does make a difference. If you can't manage that, then please leave a nice review on iTunes or sub to my YouTube channel. You can also share the podcast wherever you can. Or perhaps leave a nice review on iTunes or Spotify. I don't have many reviews there yet. I appreciate uh, anything you do greatly. You can also follow and interact with me on Twitter. At Born Alchemist. Now in these times of excessive control exercised by big corporations and big governments. I sometimes feel like I want to go away somewhere. Because of that, I want to finish this episode with the track Go Away by Fate Fabio. Links to him can be found in the program notes and on naturalbornalchemist.com. Freedom is in the mind. I wanna go away, will never be okay. Maybe you're the one who stays. I don't wanna be alive. I think that's a lie. Maybe I just go away I just wanna say Save me from myself I've been crazy Will never be amazing Don't never let me go Just wanna be myself I wanna go outside and be alive Will never going home Just wanna go to LA or take a flight To Norway maybe I will find myself I wanna drive through the night just wanna see you smile Maybe that's the only thing I just wanna go away We'll never be okay Maybe I will find myself I just wanna say Save me from myself I've been crazy We'll never be amazing I'll never let me go 